Thanks for tuning in to the Think for Yourself podcast, hosted by Dr. Vikraman Sharmani. The podcast was started in early 2020 to share some of the ideas from his most recent book, Think for Yourself, Restoring Common Sense in the Age of Experts in Artificial Intelligence, which is available for purchase via Amazon, bookshop.org, and most other retailers. This episode is the audio portion of a webinar hosted by Dr. Mancharamani on December 1st with Ambassador Hank Crumpton, 24-year veteran of the CIA's clandestine service and author of The Art of Intelligence. The video replay of this discussion is available at www.mancharamani.com. Thank you everyone for joining. Uh, I am thrilled today to have Ambassador Hank Crumpton join me for a discussion here on the Think for Yourself webinar series. Um, and uh, it should be a very interesting discussion about navigating uncertainty and spotting opportunities while also identifying some key risks. So uh, themes that I'm very comfortable discussing and excited to, to have this discussion. Uh, before we get into it, however, uh, the traditional advertisement needs to take place. <laughs> so apologies. Uh, next week on Monday, uh, I will be hosting Jeremy Grantham, uh, co-founder of GMO, fellow bubbleologist. Uh, and surprise, surprise, we'll talk about financial markets, valuation, and navigating uncertainty in an in investing uh, sense. Um, and then as a re you know, the replays that are available, I thought I would just quickly run through them so you all know the ones that are available from this fall series. Uh, one is Stu Friedman. Uh, we had him on November 17th. Stu was the founder of the leadership program at um, Wharton uh, at the University of Pennsylvania. And that was an interesting discussion, more on personal leadership, uh, but nonetheless uh, from a person who's thought deeply about these topics. Uh, before that, we had Rebecca Listener from the uh, US Naval War College talking about geopolitics and specifically geopolitics in a Biden administration. Um, and uh, her book, An Open World, served as the framework for the discussion, but we were a lot broader than just that. Um, we had Roger Martin, uh, the legendary professor from the University of Toronto, uh, who's retired, one of management, uh, or from Thinkers 50, I think is the organization that ranked him as the world's uh, number one management thinker, uh, has written a lot of books. Uh, his, more re his most recent book was When More Is Not Better. And so we discussed that. And that's really a critique at some level of democratic capitalism and the desire for more, more, more efficiency, 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 and the problems of inequality and other dynamics that emerged from that uh, pursuit. So uh, that replay is available. Uh, we had David Katz, uh, doctor, uh, who co-wrote a book with uh, Mark Bittman on how to eat. Uh, that replay is available. Um, we had uh, General uh, Susan Helms um, as well earlier uh, this fall. Uh, General Helms, 211 days in outer space um, and talked to us about what it was like uh, and uh, answered some questions from young listeners as well. So if you want to know how to go to the bathroom in outer space, et cetera, she was able to field all of those questions as well as the geopolitics of outer space. Um, we had Rakesh Karana, uh, Dean of Harvard College, talk to us about higher education in a time of COVID and sort of a pandemic as well as mental health dynamics of students. Uh, and so that replays available. And then we began the uh, the fall uh, series, at least with Annie Duke, professional poker player, uh, probabilistic thinker, someone who thinks about navigating uncertainty in her own way uh, and her most recent book. And then of course, uh, available for $20.95. I, I don't know what the price is on Amazon today, uh, is my book, uh, Think for Yourself. Uh, and I encourage any and all of you to uh, make sure you get that if you haven't. Uh, and if you want one and you can't find it, by all means, reach out. I'm happy to send you one. Um, 
All right. So with that said, uh, I am absolutely thrilled to have Ambassador Crumpton with us today. Ambassador Crumpton had a legendary 24-year period of time at the, uh, at the CIA uh, in their clandestine operations, and then also spent some time as a policymaker um, at the State Department, serving as an ambassador in charge of all U.S. counterterrorism efforts, um, and has since also gone on to have a very successful and uh, accomplished career in business advisory uh, practices and services uh, with uh, the Crumpton Group and then the more recent formation of Martin Plus Crumpton Group. Um, so, Ambassador Crumpton, I am thrilled to have you. Thank you for taking the time. Hey, Vikram, uh, glad to be here and, and uh, please uh, call me Hank. Oh, <laughs> thanks, Hank. Uh, so, uh, let's start with your background. I mean, you know, I remember, so by the way, for those that haven't read this, I realize it's now uh, not quite dated. I wouldn't say that, Hank, but it's it's got a couple years under its belt. Um, it's a great story. It's got a lot of how you got into your career, but it sounded like you wanted to get into the CIA at the age of nine. Where did this begin? I think you said you wrote the, the, the CIA at a, at a young age. Start with that story and then we'll go from there. Yes, yeah, sure. I uh, grew up in a small farming community in central Georgia. My father was a forester and my mother was a school teacher. And, uh, she introduced me to books at a young age, and I was a voracious reader. And for whatever reason, I and I, I knew I wanted to serve my country. You know, I grew up in a in a, a family of of service. All four paternal uncles were combat veterans of uh, World War II. My father served briefly in the 101st Airborne, and so I knew I wanted to serve. Uh, uh, but through exploring the local library, I was attracted to irregular warfare espionage and just became fascinated with it at a very early age. So yes, I wrote to the CIA and, and what was incredible was a couple of weeks later, I got a response and I can only imagine. I just said, you know, put on the envelope CIA Washington DC and threw it in the post office uh, box, but some kind person wrote back. And so I get a letter from CIA with a, with a letterhead and, and uh, encouraged me to reapply when I was older. And so I, I did. Good for you, good for you. Um, and so you were also probably one of the youngest folks in the training program, is that right? Yeah, that's correct, yeah. In the trainee class, I was uh, 23 when I joined and I was the youngest and, 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 and certainly I think the least educated. I'm, I'm still not quite sure how I got in, but I'm, I'm thrilled I did. Yeah, no, it's fabulous. And what is, just for context, what's a normal entry age for someone in that program? At that time, it was 29, 30 years of age, and I assume it was still the same because understandably, the agency wants people that have uh, usually advanced education, work experience, a lot of time overseas, and uh, because they have such a broad range of uh, interest and needs and, and professions. And yep. so you, it takes time to develop those skills normally. Perfect. So one of the things I found fascinating about some of your early career decisions, Hank, was uh, your ability to sort of zig when others wanted to zag. And so, you know, I remember you describing in your book how, hey, I, I wanted to go to Africa because in Africa, I get bigger responsibility. I'd be able to play more roles. And this is, and so, you know, some of the folks that are probably on this call are, are current former students of mine, others thinking about their career. Uh, mm -hmm. What lesson did you take from that? Because it sounded like you did get a lot more responsibility and, and sort of rose quicker because you were willing to go and do things that others maybe weren't willing to. 
Well, I was certainly attracted to the, the opportunity and the mission because this was back in the 80s and a lot of the hot battles of the Cold War were being waged in Africa. So I wanted to contribute to the mission and I thought I could, I could do it in, uh, in that area. And I was also attracted to, you know, these very small uh, stations and the opportunity to try and explore different things. It was a, a chaotic, churning, sometimes wild environment and a great place to, to, to start. And I spent a total of 10 years in different assignments across Africa. And, and for me, that, that ability to have some in, independence, some uh, creativity, and the, the, on the other end of the spectrum, just to give you a comparison, if, if you went to Moscow or, or Beijing, uh, you had to have extreme uh, discipline and focus, uh, particularly on one operational act, maybe in two or three months. And that had to be executed perfectly. And so Africa was on the other end of this, uh, the spectrum where there was an opportunity to, to meet and uh, uh, assess, develop, and then recruit foreign nationals to spy for America. Yep. And in Africa back in the 80s and 90s, uh, it was a, a wealth of uh, op opportunity in that regard with Iranians, North Korean, uh, Koreans, and uh, Chinese uh, others that, that were there. In addition to you know, some of the, the insurgencies I referred to earlier. Yeah. Do you think that's still the case today? Just out of I would think so. Yeah, I would. I would think so. I mean, certainly, uh, there are more Chinese in Africa uh, than they've ever been, uh, both in the private sector and in terms of uh, their official um, uh, yeah. presence. Sure. Yeah. So the other thing I thought was interesting uh, for when I was reviewing your book here this weekend was the different roles that a CIA uh, employee in the clandestine service might play that you found you were particularly good at recruiting. Um, and so I'm sort of curious, why was that? What is there a unique skill set there? Is there something in your disposition that lends yourself towards being more skilled at that? Uh, you're obviously great at it. But I'm sort of curious why, if, if you have any insight there. I, I think it, it, I think for any successful CIA officer, you need to have a, an intense curiosity and always interested in people. Although I am an, an introvert, uh, I, I do enjoy people and do enjoy learning about uh, their situations, their hopes, their aspirations. And uh, I think that... Uh, keen interest in humanity, because it is ultimately about the mission, was, was for me essential. And although um, I uh, failed in terms of learning foreign languages, you know, I'll, I'll never be anybody other than this, this kid from the Piney Woods of Georgia. Uh, I, I was able to find common ground with uh, a, a lot of foreigners and uh, some of them I was able to develop and recruit as, as valuable sources of intelligence for the US government. Yep. So what about personally? I mean, you know, sort of started a family in Africa. I mean, that, my guess is for a kid from Georgia, that wasn't, in, that wasn't the plan. <laughs> or maybe no, it was. <laughs> there, there, was there wasn't, there wasn't a, a whole lot of planning uh, beyond uh, just wanting to join the agency and get overseas. And yep. I, I was fortunate, I, I met my uh, wife uh, 38 years ago uh, in, in Africa, and we raised three children there. Our first child, in fact, was born in Nairobi, Kenya. Yep. Just had a great time there. I mean, Africans are so loving, 
of children and so welcoming and so generous uh, could could not have had a better place in in, in that respect to uh, to to raise our, our three sons. Yep. And then you uh, you came back from Africa, um, and just so quickly maybe connect the dots from there through the time you were sort of uh, spending with the FBI, and then on to uh, eventually, I guess, back into uh, the Middle East, uh, and then back to sort of State Department, if you will. You sort of bounce yeah. back and forth across the Atlantic, and uh, uh, but but sort of if you want to just quickly connect the dots, then we'll get to sort of current affairs and some of your current thinking. Yeah, you bet. Um, uh, along the way, I also had three years in, in Europe to, to broaden my uh, perspective, and that was educational and, and helpful. But eventually, I got back from uh, all these overseas tours to the U.S. in uh, August of 1998. And by uh, horrible coincidence, that's when our embassies uh, in uh, Nairobi, uh, Kenya and Dar es Salaam, Tanzania were bombed by Al Qaeda. And I had, in, in fact, served in both of those uh, embassies years previously. And so the CIA, the Counterterrorism Center specifically, they loaned me to the FBI. And so I was the deputy in the FBI's International Counterterrorism Division and spent a year there helping uh, with their investigation of those bombings and FBI counterterrorism efforts worldwide. And it was a wonderful experience because and totally you know, different, uh, the, the culture, the, their mission in some respects, and then also being in the environment of Washington, D.C. and going to the White House as a CIA officer to represent the FBI, uh, learning opportunities uh, in, in that role. And then after that, I went back to the agency for two years, and I uh, was the chief of operations for the Counterterrorism Center. So worldwide CIA operations against terrorists, whether it was Al-Qaeda, Hezbollah, the FARC in Colombia, the Tamil Tigers, uh, all that fell under uh, that, uh, that particular mission. And I had focused particularly on Afghanistan, given the, the nature of the threat. Uh, that's where bin Laden uh, was. And, and so uh, sent the first team into Afghanistan in September of 1999. And sub I sent subsequent teams afterwards over the next two years. Was assigned overseas briefly. It was supposed to be a four year tour, but was called back after 9-11 to organize and lead the CIA response, the, the campaign into Afghanistan. And so I did that for the next, uh, uh, next 10 months. And then eventually after another assignment, Condoleezza Rice, when she moved from the White House to be Secretary of State, she asked that I leave the CIA and come work for her as the coordinator uh, for U.S. counterterrorism policy. And I did that till 2007 when I retired from uh, government service. Yeah, what's interesting about that, Hank, is I love your description of that transition, because I think that transition actually gives you a really unique perspective. You said you went from, or from intelligence producer to intelligence consumer. You went from sort of under the limelight to in the limelight to public facing, et cetera. And so that was a big sort of shift in sort of your role in your day to day. Um, that uh, sort of tell us what you learned from that transition. I mean, is there deeper appreciation for the complexities of policy making? Was it sort of, you know, these guys are too siloed and now I see where I came up a silo, you know, sort of what, what insights did you get from that transition? Um, 
several. One was that the CIA clandestine service is really not the center of the universe. When you step outside <laughs> from it and you look back in, it, it, it gives you a whole new perspective. And my assignment to the FBI helped, but particularly when I went to the Department of State and, and that, that policy leadership role. The other thing I, I learned is that uh, the CIA, given the resources and authorities, can do some extraordinary things that no other government agency can. Because uh, while I was working at State Department, I was working across U.S. government national security you know, spectrum, a lot with defense, law enforcement. So I was able to understand more and appreciate more their limitations and, and their strengths. So that was uh, an important aspect of it. But perhaps most of all, the, the value of our diplomatic efforts and the need for allies. Now, I knew that from an operational perspective and experience I had, but working with our allies overseas and including the public diplomacy element, which I frankly was not prepared for, was not expecting, and had to spend an extra amount of time learning that. Because in the 18 months I worked for uh, Secretary Rice, I had well over 100 uh, interviews, press conferences. There was an enormous amount of public diplomacy, and that I found was incredibly important. And that was probably the biggest surprise uh, in, in, in that tenure. Interesting. Um, and then uh, just before we get to the topic of uh, your, your private sector life, walk us through this FBI CIA distinction. Um, I mean, look, uh, I found when I was rereading your book this weekend, some really interesting deltas that I think are worth highlighting. Uh, one, the reactive nature of the FBI versus the proactive nature of the CIA the justice-focused effort, if you will, versus the prevention-focused effort, the hold the intel from the FBI perspective versus share the intel to policymakers um, in, at the CIA perspective, the, the, even the cultural observations you had, which was like, look, the CIA, you write memos, you actually, because it needs to be channeled up a chain of command. People need to see it, as, you know, people can read it. It can be shared with people you have to congeal your ideas. There's an exercise there versus the FBI where people communicate verbally and spoken and sort of the implications of that. The domestic focus versus the international, particularly when they crisscross. Um, so um, what it led me to think about was, are we too siloed in our approach to handling these problems? These, these problems cross domestic international. Uh, yes, they're reactive, but they may actually learn something that could make them proactive. Uh, yes, justice is important, but justice may lead towards prevention of a next one. Um, tell me a little bit about how you think about the siloization, and in particular, given your FBI and CIA experiences. Well, one thing I found is that uh, the further you get from Washington, D.C., and the closer you get to the enemy, uh, there are fewer and fewer silos because yep. of the imperative to collaborate. And uh, you see some extraordinary uh, cooperation, even integration. And the best example I, I have of that was in Afghanistan in 2001, 2002, when the CIA and U.S. military special forces uh, ad hoc on the fly figured out how to deeply integrate uh, their uh, intelligence and operational efforts. Yep. So some really good success stories. Uh, sadly, in D.C., it's often the opposite, where you've got turf and resources and 
uh, credit and and politics uh, that that are involved. And uh, that's just the, the the nature of the beast. And I think the key to that, like in the private sector, of course, is is leadership yeah. and bringing the right people together and uh, trying to break down around specific missions. The national security agenda right now is so complex that you've got to use all the elements of statecraft. Sadly, we don't do a very good job of that. Uh, we're particularly good with the application of military power. But yeah. if you look at uh, the need to bring in commerce and justice and other elements of the national security and foreign policy infrastructure, uh, we, we don't do a very good job of that. And, and one way to approach it, I would argue, uh, and I've been making this point for years with no success, is have a, a deep bias to the field. If you look at a U.S. ambassador, I think there should be a more rigorous selection process, a, a, a greater emphasis on training. And I also think they should be given uh, much more in terms of resources, because then they it's, it's much more um, easy. It's uh, closer to the point of impact when you're in the field. And with the right ambassador, with the right training, right resources, they can pull together an enormous amount of, of power and apply it in the right way. But just as one example, the discretionary spending for a U.S. ambassador is infinitesimal. And you yeah. compare that to, you know, some of the military uh, programs that uh, uh, we frankly waste a lot of money on. So I could go on, but I, I think that a field bias would be would be beneficial. And we're a long way from that. Yeah. Yeah. No, I understand that. Um, so let's move to the private sector life uh, and then current affairs. Uh, and then, by the way, everyone listening, feel free to send in questions. We're seeing a lot of questions come in. Keep them coming. I'll get to them uh, and I'll screen them. Um, but uh, so then you, you, you leave government and public service, Hank, and you sort of you hang your shingle. Uh, with the Crompton Group. And I think that's when we first met, um, uh, when you uh, re fairly recently started that. Um, and uh, mm -hmm. but so the motivation there was to take the lessons learned about connecting dots, navigating uncertainty, spotting opportunities, managing risks, and help the, the private sector. Um, what, what was your thinking around that? It's just sort of uh, an more an open-ended question about uh, the motivations and, and sort of the, the stories you may have there. Yeah, sure. Um, I, I had always wanted to serve my, my country and uh, really had no other plans. But at the age of 50, uh, I was eligible to retire. I was deeply in debt, had three uh, smart young men uh, sons that were one was in a, in a very good college the other two were uh, stacked up right behind him so it was really uh, an imperative to get out of debt and, and figure out how to get my kids through school and so that was the 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 primary motivation and so the next question of course was well, how do you do that and yep. I had some some interviews with defense contractors and some big companies and you know, great companies, great people, but for me, it just did not seem like a good fit. And I frankly wasn't sure what I wanted to do, but thanks to some mentors, I was able to uh, get on a couple of boards, uh, doing some consulting. And then after a year of that on my own, I figured that number one, I could survive. I could uh, make a contribution. And based on that, I started a Crumpton Group with uh, a couple of colleagues and uh, that was almost 13 years ago, this, oh, this January, it'll be 13 years. 
and I found it enormously rewarding and um, learned a lot and still learn it and still enjoy working. And, yeah. uh, so what do you ahead. do? I'm just really curious. Hey, so what kind of work do you guys do? I mean, you sort of, you go in and you say, Hey, we're going to, you're not building out corporate intelligence efforts. You're helping him think about strategy, different dynamics, sort of. Mm-hmm. The, the, the concept is pretty simple was take the intelligence discipline, which is a deep, rigorous analytical process that affords advice to and previously the president of the United States and combatant commanders and others, and see if I could take that discipline, transfer it and put it to work in the private sector and look at the CEO, the C-suite, the board perhaps as my intelligence customer. And that assumption was based on the fact that the world's gonna get more complex and boy has it, and that decisions would be harder and that business leaders would need that intelligence to make decisions whether it was about, okay, making an acquisition of a company in South Africa or dealing with a particular risk uh, related to corruption in Brazil, on and on. And I found out that uh, it was uh, a value and was able to build a business around that concept. The, the, the fascinating part is that we've got some great clients with some great missions in some really hard parts of the world. And I failed to appreciate how much I enjoyed helping them. That might be the biggest surprise of this transition for me into the private sector. I just really had, had no idea, but I found, find that enormously rewarding. Interesting. So one area that you and I have spent a lot of time talking about in the past is cyber and sort of cyber risk, cyber thinking, et cetera. Obviously there were big geopolitical dynamics with that, uh, you know, the Stuxnet and what happened with Iran and sort of, um, even this, uh, you know, implications on shipping companies, like the NotPetya thing. I spent some time thinking and reading about that. Uh, do you help companies with cyber stuff too? Or how do you think about cyber risks generally? Maybe we'll start there uh, in terms of the, the corporate advisory work, but then more generally with your, your global experience base. Mm-hmm. I mean, should I be worried, like deeply worried about the risks of a cyber Pearl Harbor type event? Uh, the short answer is yes. Um, I'll, 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 I'll back up. Uh, my yeah. introduction into a digital risk more than three decades ago as a CIA operations officer, my mission was to steal enemy secrets, including enemy secrets uh, that were being transformed into digital uh, space. And so that's how I was introduced to this domain was stealing enemy secrets. And I learned from that point, and I am not a technology guy at all, I learned from that point of departure that the, the weakest link uh, in that espionage effort with people. And I see that today uh, in, in companies in, in the private sector. And it might be individuals, it might be policies, it might be lack of leadership. And mm-hmm. sadly, we as a nation, and it's, it's just part of our culture, we reflexively look for the technology fix and there's some great technologies out there and you've got to have it. You've got to employ the technologies suited for your particular needs, but without that strategy, without that structure of understanding of measuring and understanding the digital risk to your particular company, it's, it's really hard to deploy the right technologies and the right people. And so that's how we approach it today, really from a C-suite perspective. 
And it yeah. can be something really simple. We had, had one very uh, sophisticated uh, client, uh, terrific uh, work in the cyber domain, but they had no idea who was taking out their trash. So, and we checked and there was a contractor who subbed to another contractor. And so you had people with almost to all parts of, uh, uh, of their office space. And they had at the same time had some of the most sophisticated uh, technologies in protecting their data that was out there. So yeah. something as simple as that sometimes. Interesting. Uh, how about at the country level? Uh, uh, as an American, should we be worried deeply about state versus state cyber terrorism, cyber attacking, what have you? Yeah. Uh, yeah, obviously, sure. we, know, we know about the Chinese attack on the U.S. personnel files, et cetera, uh, probably mm -hmm. very disturbing to lots of uh, American mm -hmm. public servants. But um, is this an ongoing risk? Is it a China risk? Is it a North Korea? Is it a Russia? Is it all of the above? Uh, how do I think about it? Yeah, it's all the ab above, and you can add Iran and others. There are probably about 50 countries now that have offensive cyber capabilities. Uh, not all of them are adversaries, of course, but uh, a percentage are, and they're becoming more sophisticated. And what's also difficult is that you have these nation states that are collaborating, working closely with non-state actors, with hackers for hire, with criminal groups, and so often there could be two or three layers between that nation state and that, uh, that hacker. And mm -hmm. so it makes it extra difficult for companies, for governments to discern and to, to respond. And then what, what really is gonna make this super challenging is the advent of 5G and the internet of things, where mm -hmm. you have to start thinking about the toys that you buy or the vacuum cleaner that's roaming around your house and mapping your house while it vacuums. There are hundreds, if not thousands, of examples that are coming down the road. And we, we as a nation have done a very poor job of understanding and addressing those, those risks. Yeah, that's interesting. So you don't have a Roomba in your house there? No, don't, don't have one of those. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So uh, before we open to some of the questions, I'll drizzle them in. I just want to ask a couple uh, more fun questions. Uh, like one of the things I've done with this webinar series is uh, I, I get feedback from people who listen. And for whatever reason, people love hearing about book and movie recommendations from the guests I host. So uh, do you have a favorite book, fiction, other books that you sort of, that you go back to and say, hey, that was a really great read that you'd recommend to others? Yeah, sure. Uh, Washington's Crossing by David Hackett Fisher. Uh, okay. It's an incredible tale of George Washington and his hard a road to learning uh, to be a military commander in some of the tragedies in New York and, and in his initial campaigns, and then how he used intelligence, how he was a strategic thinker, a man of great patience, and most of all, just a man of enormous character. You know, he was not a brilliant uh, a commander, um, limited to some degree in his formal education, but a voracious reader and a man of just incredible willpower and strength and character. And it is so it's about his, his uh, journey learning how to command and about his crossing of the Delaware and, and why he made that decision and the implications of that decision. I could go on. I've, 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 read, the book three, I've read the book three times. That's how much I like it. So Excellent. yeah, that's, that's my number one for sure. In terms of a movie, I would probably go with Saving Private Ryan. And yeah. uh, again, it, it, it goes to a particular hero of mine, that's George Marshall. 
who was chief of staff of the army, and he is depicted in this movie in a, in a very rare depiction of, of the character George Marshall. And uh, uh, just an extraordinary guy and, and very similar to Washington, in the fact, just a man of enormous character and moral strength and his selfless leadership uh, and his empathy, his love for the soldiers and uh, that, that image of him in his office writing letters to the parents of the fallen, I, I just thought was particularly poignant. And uh, it's a great story, great combat scenes. Yeah, no, it's a good movie. Uh, so before we go to questions, since you brought the topic of movies and sort of Hollywood and presentation of ideas in the visual format, this is an area that you've been involved with, right? And whether it's, uh, you know, uh, sort of making movies or, or I guess uh, TV shows, et cetera, and including an intelligence component uh, to it. One of the things I was gonna ask you about was sort of the image of the intelligence function in popular media. Um, you know, I've, I've heard from other intelligence officers that they really didn't like the depiction of uh, some of the scenes in Zero Dark Thirty. They thought they were in unfair. They were dramatized, etc. Um, and, you know, I've watched the documentary. You and I were talking about this earlier about spy masters. And I thought that was really great and sort of really well balanced and sort of showed the pros, the cons, the difficulties. You sort of felt the probabilistic angst that decision makers have. There's not a good decision. I do the best I can with the info I have. Uh, but I'm sort of curious about the work you've done on the image of the CIA in popular media and what role you think that could have sort of in national service, like sort of helping the country embrace some of this. Well, uh, we gave it a good effort <laughs> in terms of uh, uh, our, our production uh, of, of one television series that ran for a season. I learned a lot. I have no regrets in in giving it a try, and I may try it again, and I hope have a have a better outcome uh, the the next time. Uh, but uh, uh, America and the world, we learn so much from media, and I think it's important. And uh, I would like to see a more accurate uh, portrayal. But at the same time, Zero Dark Thirty is an example. I thought it was a good movie. I enjoyed it, and I. Uh, but we have to keep in mind it's a movie. Yes. It's, it's, it's not a documentary. So yeah. uh, I think overall, it, you know, it's, it was fun. I, I enjoyed it as long as we yeah. remember it's, it's, it's a movie. Yeah. And, and I, I still think there's room for a more authentic portrayal of uh, intelligence officers, particularly CIA officers uh, yeah. in, in, in the public uh, domain, particularly popular media. And so maybe one day I'll take another shot at it. Got it. Good. Um, all right. Let me turn to some questions here. Uh, one comes from um, a, a woman who says, I spent 46 years with the CIA. How do you think the Trump years have impacted the agency positively, negatively morale? Right. Well, I'll, uh, I'll lead off with that. I've been from out of the CIA now for more than 15, almost 16 years, I guess. So I, I really have no current insight. My best guess is that the people in Washington, particularly the director and others, uh, had an extra challenge uh, given the political nature uh, of, of this particular administration. Mm -hmm. um, and I think they've done a credible, uh, perhaps remarkable job would be my guess. And, but they have been impacted, certainly. I mean, you work for the president of the United States and he is your, your primary uh, customer. So there's got to be an impact. I, 
I think in some cases uh, it would be less impactful for those that are deployed overseas. I recall when I was an operative working undercover, the, the mission is so all encompassing, you, you don't really have time to think about politics in DC. Now, there are some exceptions to that. Uh, one would be the withdrawal of US forces in Northern Iraq, where we abandoned the Kurds again. And I can only imagine what it would be like for those CIA officers next to their Kurdish partners and they've been fighting with shoulder to shoulder for months or years and, and having to walk away from them. So they are some, some pretty, pretty tough exceptions in the field like that. But I am uh, confident about the agency. Uh, I'm confident about its current leadership. Uh, Director Haspel is first rate. And I am confident that uh, our intelligence professionals will get through this. Got it. Um, I probably have four or five questions that came in on text to me and on the about China. Uh, Hank. So obviously uh, we've gone from a world where I believe the primary focus has been sort of counterinsurgency to one where we're now thinking more in terms of potential great power rivalry. I'm trying to summarize three or four questions here. Um, and so, you know, you actually mentioned in your book that there, this was what, 10, 12 years, 10 years ago, you say, uh, there's a large number of Russian and Chinese uh, agents being built out into the US uh, as we, as you were writing. Uh, and that's something we need to worry about. And here we are, what, 10 years later, almost. Um, mm -hmm. And like one can only imagine that that's more extreme. Look, I down the hall in my office at Harvard, uh, the head of the chemistry department was, uh, you know, accused and uh, apprehended and arrested for potential dealings with the Chinese on an intellectual property endeavor in terms of labs and sort of efforts there. Um, is China a major worry of yours, and how should we think about it going forward? Yeah, from sure. your perspective. Yeah. yeah, sure. And and we we do tend to. Uh, get on the foreign policy seesaw. You know, the Cold War, it was all about nation states and some of their proxies. And then 9-11, of course, it was mostly about counterterrorism, counterinsurgency. And now you've got the great power. Well, it, the, the non-state actors hadn't gone away. Terrorism hadn't gone away. In fact, what you're seeing is some of the, the, the powers like China as an example, working with non-state actors, North Korea working with non-state actors. So it's a complex web of, of, of all of these actors coming together to pose uh, threats to the United States. And there's this area between conventional war and diplomacy, and that increasingly is where we're having to wage uh, these, these conflicts whether they're hot or cold, and I think that will continue. China specifically, sure, it's the number one nation state a threat that we, we face. Uh, just look at what's going on between China and Australia right now. Truly remarkable where you've got the Chinese uh, exercising overt, uh, blatant economic coercion on the Australians demanding that they basically draw down on their free speech. They, they're criticizing their think tanks, their media, and saying you basically cannot criticize China if you want to trade with us. Now, that's been going on for years in Southeast Asia. You know, Cambodia has been a vassal state of, of China for you know, more than a decade or two. But you see China expanding this, now taking on Australia, which is, has only 25 million people. So they see that as a, a target uh, 
and, and also I think it's, it reflects the attitude of Beijing is that they really do think that the, the West uh, is, is no longer uh, the threat it was and that they are much stronger. And I think that they will push to see how far that, that they can go. So I think it's important that the U.S. with our allies like Australia understand this and realize it. Yeah. And I, I think for all my criticism of the Trump administration, I do give them credit for recognizing that China is indeed a threat. Now, I disagree with the way this administration has gone about uh, uh, taking on China. I think it was really a horrible idea to walk away from the Trans-Pacific Partnership, one of the first things that this administration did, because we need allies more than ever. Uh, but yeah, China is, is a major threat. Well, you're looking at cyber, you're looking at the South China Sea, uh, economic competition. Now, what I would argue for is that you've got to take China head on in some of these areas, just like the Aussies are doing, just like we're, we're doing in the South China Sea. Uh, while I hope we avoid military conflict. And we also have to compete and we do a lousy job of, of competing, particularly in the economic domain. And I would love to see more American companies with US government support go into Latin America, go into Africa. I mean, these are some markets with real opportunity and we're getting whipped by the Chinese because in a lot of cases, we're not even showing up. Mm -hmm. And I also think there's an area for cooperation. I really think that we've got to understand the Chinese perspective, and there's some areas that we can work with them on, even with, well, even COVID pandemic, uh, number one, uh, even with some of the Chinese uh, misinformation uh, in the beginning and their continuing use of the pandemic as a diplomatic tool to criticize uh, the West and how we're handling it. But things like that, you've got to find a way to work with them because it is a global issue. Yeah. That's a tough one. Um, you know, one of the text questions I received uh, raised the question about Taiwan. Um, and, you know, how would you, from your perspective of dot connecting and seeing the world through the lenses of intelligence and some mm -hmm. of the diplomatic experiences you've had, think about uh, Taiwan's future in light of this great power rivalry and the U.S. commitment to defend it? I think it's uh, an maybe issue. Maybe commitment is a question too, right? Or defend right. is a question, right? right? So, um, but anyway. Well, um, I, I think you've already seen uh, how the U.S. and our allies uh, backed away from China on Hong Kong. And, and frankly, there was no leverage there. Uh, I don't know how we could have told China no, frankly, uh, with Hong Kong, as sad as that is. Uh, with yeah. Taiwan, we can't. And so I do support uh, our uh, alliance with them. And I think we do need to be uh, aware of the risk, but also I think there's an issue of American credibility that uh, has eroded over the last few years. So yes, it's about Taiwan, it's about China, but it's also about the US, uh, US credibility worldwide. And I think we need to restore that. And if we walked away from Taiwan, I think uh, our allies in South Korea and Japan and Australia would be rethinking uh, their particular roles. And I think that would be a, a tragedy. Yeah. All right. Uh, lots of questions. So let me turn to another one here. It is well known, and by the way, if any of these are, 
or uh, too uh, off topic, uh, Hank, please just, we'll dismiss them and move on. It is well known that the CIA has been involved in international election irregularities. How likely is it that our recent presidential elected election was impacted by, you know, other people's activities or fraudulent activity? Well, I have no firsthand experience in this election other than voting. Um, but to, based on, on what I've read and people I've talked to, it was an incredibly secure election. And I, I don't see any indication of, of massive fraud uh, in, anywhere. And, and I think it goes back to one of the early lessons of, I learned as a, as a young intelligence officer, uh, if you really want to know what's going on, listen to the locals. And yep. in this case, you have local officials, irrespective of party, almost universally claiming this is a, a free, fair election, absent any foreign uh, intervention. So that's that's where I'm I'm basing my my judgment on. And yeah. and, and in terms of how the question was was uh, was raised. It, this is historical, of course. CIA has been involved in elections, and CIA continues, I assume, I hope, with covert action. But any covert action is is authorized, it is directed by the president. In fact, it's a, it's a written presidential order that tells the CIA they have to engage in this. And also, Congress is briefed on that, both, uh, both parties. And so, uh, yes, it's the CIA that is executing, but it's always at the direction of the president of the United States, at least since 19, uh, 1973, after the church commissions and some of the reforms. Gotcha. Uh, a related question here, uh, which I think is pretty interesting. Um, Ambassador Crumpton, do you see any parallels between the politics and government, i.e. Washington, being out of touch with what's happening in the field? So again, sort of local versus the centralized and how corporate suits, if you will, at headquarters might be out of touch with the sales force or again, their field. Is there any lesson to be had there from the, the government work and the, the parallels of information processing and insight and, uh, and, and sort of the corporate world? Oh, bingo. I, I have written about this. I've lectured about this, the, the, the need to, to be in the field and have that field bias. I, I had the, the great uh, uh, fortune to, to serve on the advisory board of the Coca-Cola company. And I remember speaking to some of their uh, young executives from all over the world that had come together for a conference and uh, just had a great discussion. And one question I asked him was, how many of you have gone to where the last bottle of Coke was sold at the end of your supply chain. And we had people from Russia. I remember the lady, she in fact was from Siberia, people from Nigeria, all over the world. And so many of them had. And I just think if you look at a great example of understanding the local market, you've got these uh, young, dynamic, smart executives that are on the way up. And the majority of them, they had been to where that that Coke had been delivered at the last line of, uh, of the, the truck route. And I just think that's pretty terrific. And we can all learn that. It's so easy. I, I, I have clients and I've criticized them. They, they go from a jet to their uh, four seasons, back to their jet to a conference. And there's just so much to learn and explore you know, be, beyond that. And I think some of the best entrepreneurs do. Uh, they, yeah. they do go to India and China and, and uh, roll up their sleeves and get to work. Yep. Um, just because we're starting to run out of time, I want to keep going with more questions, if that's okay. Uh, yeah, sure. So, uh, 
how well does the agency forecast world events? Uh, this person went on anonymously submitted, said, I worked on several IARPA and S&T initiatives focused on forecasting. I know the challenge. I don't know the track record. What do you think? Well, I don't like the word forecast. I never forecast. You, I think you start predicting the future, you're going to lose. I, I, think that, <laughs> I think that you can make some analytical judgments, that you can uh, design some scenarios that help thinking. But I think forecasting is 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 really problematic, and I I I, I never pretend that 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 I can forecast, and I don't think intelligence professionals, you know, you know, should even use that word. Frankly, I think analytical, rigorous judgments where you weigh probabilities and you have a reasoned discussion and you come to a conclusion with a point of view, that's important. Also, it can't be. Just an academic exercise. I mean, intelligence is about providing the consumer a perspective, a point of view that enables a decision. Uh, yeah. But that falls, in my view, short of, of you know trying to forecast. Yeah, it's interesting. One of the things that uh, I had the chance uh, years ago to spend some time with General Hayden, um, and you know, we talked. He and I talked a little bit about what happened with the weapons of mass destruction in Iraq and the intelligence assessments, if you will, there. And he said. You know, from one of the things we did really wrong was we didn't share the ambiguities of our, you know, it came off as an, as an assessment or prediction when really it was a range of thinking based on some ambiguities and we didn't convey those ambiguities. So one of the things I've done in my consulting work is I always tell people stop with the point estimates. Let's talk about ranges because the ranges will inherently bring forth that uncertainty because you don't know. So, um, yeah, I think that I think that's exactly right. Uh, so um, what about uh, what do you think the CIA will be focused on in the next 20 years? Uh, there's there's a question. There's a couple of questions about sort of forecasting threat thinking. Is it going to be China thing? Is it climate change? Is it, um, you know, melting, rising sea levels? I guess that's related to climate change. Uh, a couple of things like that. Where are the uh, where do you think the focuses will be or foci? Well, it will be to a large extent, you know, determined by who's sitting in the Oval Office. Uh, I, I think having said that, uh, cyber, uh, like I mentioned earlier, in some ways we're just beginning to understand uh, what a, a world of, of, con of connectivity really means and the great opportunities that, that provides us, but also, also the risk <coughs> that uh, will continue to, to be important. I think that the, if I recall, I'm not sure, three, four years ago, I heard that the budget for cyber had now exceeds the budget for counterterrorism operations. That was three, four, five years ago. Um, so I assume that's still the case, and I assume it's probably still growing. If you look at climate change long term, it's going to have some profound geopolitical uh, implications. And I'm not sure where the agency is in that, but I, I would hope it's on, on their, their radar. If you look at uh, terrorism, uh, sadly, that's not going away. Uh, enemies are becoming more sophisticated. And if you look at the marriage of weapons of mass destruction with the terrorism tactic, that, that really is, is the nightmare scenario. And uh, that is gonna remain, I think, near the top or at the top of, of, of concerns. And then finally, I would uh, also note that you've got an array of new technologies that are coming uh, to the fore, uh, driven by AI, but you have robotics, you have 
a, a marriage of these uh, different uh, technologies and disciplines that are really transforming uh, how we wage war. And the agency working with uh, elements of the Department of Defense, I think, have got a major challenge in understanding uh, these threats and how it will impact the battlefield and that big gray space between conventional war and, and diplomacy. Uh, and if you look at the amount of R&D that China is putting into these areas, it's pretty extraordinary. And I think, and I hope that the Biden administration will uh, increase the government's R&D uh, spending. Uh, just give you just one, one data point. Uh, Amazon spends 10 times more on R&D than any single defense contractor in the U.S. government, 10 times. And you're going to have to have government support to address some of these uh, these challenges uh, in in the in the tech world. So okay. I think that that and more will be on the CIA's plate. I think for years to come. Sure. Uh, there's a question around how you think Biden will be viewed by the intelligence agencies uh, and the intelligence communities, both here and and abroad, so to say. I would assume he would be given a favorable viewing and an opportunity uh, as the number one customer. And I think what intelligence officers like, uh, at least speaking for myself, we, we love an informed, demanding customer that, that, that challenges us. Mm -hmm. And I, to the extent that uh, President-elect Biden and his uh, vice president, his cabinet can do that. And I think that's, that's what intelligence officers look for. That's uh, that goes to to the sense. Yeah, uh, you know, <laughs> one of the one of the questions that just came in here, uh, I typed an answer saying hope not. Uh, but uh, will our adversary be watching this Zoom presentation? Um, you know, we're not going to maybe possible. <laughs> um, so uh, here's a question uh, that just came in also about. Uh, Oh, feel free to say no. Uh, please address the Hunter Biden laptop uh, topic. Sam Faddis, a former colleague of yours, public stated it is real. Uh, does this affect Biden's ability to deal with China? I, I'm just not familiar you know, yeah. with it. I, the, the latter part of the question uh, in terms of China, I don't, I don't see what impact that would have on, on China, but I, I, I can't address the laptop specifically. I just, I don't know. Yeah, got it. Uh, so uh, I'm going to uh, turn to something that I don't want to end on, but I want to ask you about, <laughs> which is, I always find it fascinating when I get the opportunity to chat with someone like you who's got just this wealth of experience and uh, has thought a lot about how things can go wrong. Um, uh, I'm going to ask this question very simply, which is, what keeps you up at night? What's your biggest worry? Uh, and we, we can't end on it. So we'll come back and after that talk. I don't want to leave everyone sitting there sweating bullets at night in their home, uh, worried about what's going to potentially happen. So A, what's your worry? And then uh, we'll sort of wrap up with what are your, uh, what do you think are the biggest opportunities, whether they're in tech or investing or some of the other ways you're spending your time. So, yeah. uh, so biggest worry, stuff that keeps you up at night, Mm -hmm. um, stuff that you worry about, you know, as an individual, as an American, uh, not just as a professional, uh, et cetera. Yeah, sure. Well, fortunately, I sleep pretty well. Uh, so that's that's a good thing. Uh, in terms of, of concerns, I, I look at, you know, our country and any country is only as strong as its as its people. 
And I think that if you look at our citizens right now, uh, we'll give you one stat. If you look at young Americans, uh, 18, 19, 20 years of age, 70% uh, of them are unqualified for military duty because of obesity, other health concerns, lack of education, criminal record, 70%. Yeah. That's, that's pretty astonishing. And, and frankly, the bar for you know, Army, Navy enlisted is, is not that high. The other aspect of this is the, uh, and this contributes to it, I think, is a growing inequality in our society and the lack of equal opportunity, not equal outcomes, but, but equal op opportunity. And, uh, and also on the health, not just for young adults, but if you have a third or more than a third of the nation classified as obese, yeah. uh, to put it bluntly, we're, we're too fat to fight. Yeah. And, and, uh, and so if, if I had to pick one concern, it's, it's uh, you know, our citizens. And at the same time, the top 20% of those in the military are just extraordinary. I mean, they, some of these are just truly superhuman and, uh, and they're wonderful role models and examples, but what we've got to do is close that huge gap between the 70% that are unfit for service and that top 20% who are truly magnificent. Uh, and I could go on, but if I had to pick one issue, that, that's it. Um, yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Um, so let's uh, let's try to wrap up then on a more optimistic, positive note uh, in terms of uh, where you see really interesting opportunities are. I know one of the things you do. We didn't get into some of the other activities you're doing presently, but uh, you're you're deploying capital. You're investing around interesting, neat ideas that can take mm -hmm. advantage of some of these these uncertain times. Uh, you know, it's not just about the risks. It's also about the opportunities you see. So, uh, what, where are some areas of opportunity that you're optimistic about? Yeah, sure. And, and this, again, was unplanned. I stumbled into it. Uh, we had a, a couple of guys we were using as contractors in our consulting business and uh, helping us on some of the, the digital risk issues. And we basically did a sweat for equity deal with them. And uh, a couple of years later, one of the large accounting firms came in and, and bought them. And I thought, wow, we should do that more often. And so that's how I got into the venture capital business and uh, started more sweat for equity, writing some smaller checks. And now we have a great partnership with uh, John Harris, AIM 13 in New York. So uh, we have some investment professionals that can actually help us, you know, with these transactions. And I'm focused on what you would expect, uh, things that I know from an operational perspective. I'm not a tech guy at all, certainly not a scientist. I'm not a financial guy, but as an operator, I do have an ability to look at something and say, okay, can I put that to work in the field, whether it's a drone or a counter drone technology or an analytical tool that helps make better decisions or something in the cybersecurity arena? And so that's you know, where we're, we're focused right now. And we've had some success along the way. And it's, it's pretty exciting because being able to deploy capital and, and, and the, th the three things I look for in, in this, and this is probably common sense, but it's essential for us, our approach to investing is one, you've got to understand and, and have trust and confidence in the people. You don't have the people right, no, nothing else matters. 
that, that goes to the issues of, of character. And secondly, I have to understand it. And most of what I see, uh, frankly, Vikram, I don't understand or I don't understand <laughs> the application of it. And that's okay. That's okay. So I've got to understand it. And then, and then third, you've got to see some, some value. You know, what, if you apply it into the market, will the market accept it? And what, and what kind of value? And then, how, and then how can we help that company grow? That's the other piece. If we can't help the company, I'm not interested in just writing a check. Sure. And it's been uh, it's been a lot of fun, and I think we're helping some companies and helping society you know, bring some technologies uh, in, into the marketplace. Wonderful. Well, that's uh, that's the way I think I'd like to end it, rather than worrying about China or cyber or an EMP attack or any of the long list of other questions I have here. And so, uh, Hank, I do need to thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much for for being a, a friend and mentor to me for. 10 years or so here and uh, being uh, someone to bounce ideas off of. And, and thank you for your time today and sharing your wisdom and, and for your service to our country. We're, we're really lucky to have you. Vikram, thank you. And thanks to your audience. I uh, hope you all have a good day. Thanks for taking the time to listen to this episode of the Think for Yourself podcast hosted by Dr. Vikram Mancharamani. As a reminder, the video replay of today's episode is available at www.mansharamani.com. Finally, if you've not already done so, we encourage you to subscribe to the Think for Yourself podcast on Apple Podcasts, Podbean, or Spotify. Thank you.